You've joined the Media Max Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented Morons from Outer Space. Joining me tonight is uh, Tim Worthington, who can be found on Twitter at OutOnBlue6, host of the Looks Unfamiliar podcast. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very good. Um, again, another film that you've brought to the table, which I hadn't seen in a very long time. Morons from Outer Space. Why? Well, a number of reasons. One which I'm sure we'll come back to in a bit is I think it's been very unfairly maligned for not really any good reason. I think one person who's had to go it has had a good reason, which uh, I'll come around to eventually. But the other thing is, to me, in a way, even despite all the, you know, the sort of standard legends about the films everyone in school saw that they weren't supposed to, to me, in a way, more on Tomato Space is the definitive video shop film because it was one that, for reasons I'm not quite clear on, I wasn't allowed to see in the cinema <laughs> and then later managed to get it from the video shop sort of sneakily. And you wouldn't think you'd have to sneak out more on some outer space, but there was that whole weird thing around alternative comedy that anyone who was vaguely alternative was as you know seen as part of a bad lot with Rick and Aid and French and Saunders and so on. Yeah, people were people were wary of people like Sandy Toxvig, which seems bizarre to think of now, and Tony Slattery. You know, they were all seen as undesirables because they weren't the two Ronnies. And Smith and Jones yeah. was sort of Mel Smith and Griffith Jones was sort of part of that as well, but. Morons from Outer Space was something that I very definitely thought, I can't wait till that comes out on video, and I can see that. And eventually I did. Well, it's funny that, as you say, um, it, there are a lot of people in this film who, both at the time and, and with hindsight, you, you look back and, and, of course, Smith and Jones are the big names, um, very big at the time, and yet this and their other effort at getting into films, uh, Wilf, really struggled at the box office and and for, for any sort of critical acclaim, but they really were very big, popular comedians at the time, weren't they? Very much so. I think it's worth saying that they were still kind of on the up at this point, even though they'd been in Not the Nine O'Clock News. They were sort of the, in fame terms, they were the junior partners to Rowan Atkinson and Pamela Stevenson. They were, mm. you know, they weren't as photogenic as... I'm sure people would dispute me saying Rowan Atkinson was photogenic, but he knew how to play to the camera, whereas sort of Mel and Griff always did kind of rock and roll dancing poses as though they were doing the twist or whatever. <laughs> they, were, they weren't quite as marketable, but they just had the first series on BBC Two of A Last Smith & Jones. In fact, it finished, I think, a fortnight before More On Tomato Space came out. And there'd also been... This is one that very few people remember, but those that do remember remember it really fondly. Mel Smith, with a bloke called Bob Goody, who was more a sort of serious theatre actor and director, but they did a children's ITV sketch show called Smith and Goody, which was about, it was about promoting literature, but it was just them doing daft things with books. And it was that meant a lot to me at the time. It's one of those things that's never resurfaced. I think when Mel Smith died, there was a clip from the Christmas special, Smith and Goody on Ice, which they literally presented on an ice rink sort of falling over. 
And that's all I've seen of it from that day to this. So they were still, both of them were still in the position where they, they did odd little things like that. I think mm-hmm. Griffey showed in a few pop videos around then as well. And More Runs From Outer Space was quite a big step up in fame terms, really. It was, because I remember the uh, the Kim Wilde music video that Mel Smith was in. Oh, yes. And and I suppose even now, you know, Griffrey Jones is a household name, and well, he's not on the telly as much. I mean, I think he was last seen on the Celebrity Bake Off. But when you talk about the two of them in a film with, of course, looking back again, Jimmy Nail playing an alien, obviously, and something that I found really quite shocking because I did, it didn't twig in my head. And I've got a poster of a certain film in, in one of our walls, which is probably going to come down soon. And the name of the director of this film was also the director of that. So I'm used to seeing this <laughs> name. Mike Hodges, director of Get Carter. Yeah. Yeah, which is one of my favourite films from that era. He also directed Flash Gordon and later Croupier as well, which was a bit of a sleeper hit. This is a very big step away from that. And there were a lot of issues behind the scenes between, I suppose, him and, and Mel Smith particularly. I mean, one of the, even the title was changed drastically Mm. in the research for this film i actually read an article on the bfi website where the the writer actually tracked down mike hodges and spoke to him about the film and and he was like why you know he was so taken aback Mm. that someone fondly remember this film and talk to him from the bfi which you'd sort of think would be a world away from it was genuinely glowing about it it's um it's still fondly remembered well yeah i mean he was a very odd choice because i I'm very fond of a lot of his films, like you say, Get Carter, Flash Gordon. He also did Pulp with Michael Caine and The Terminal Man from the 70s, which is quite a culty thing. He also did a TV series called The Tyrant King about Mm. some kids looking for stolen art. But all of those have got very funny moments in, but they are not comedy films. They've got moments of wit that don't really involve physical comedy. And whereas Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones, it wasn't... In some ways, it was literally in-your-face comedy because their most famous thing was where it's the two of them head-to-head in extreme close-up, saying things to each other quite quickly, you know, reacting quite quickly. And one big problem I noticed watching this again is there's an extended sequence where Mel's character is in an ambulance being driven to hospital and then being shunted through the hospital on the trolley. And the way that's shot, it doesn't come across as funny. It just looks horrible. You sit there thinking, ow, ooh, ooh, that's awful. He's just getting thrown about and knocked about, knocked his thing. It's not done in a funny way. It's done almost under the supposition that if he is thrown about, it'll be funny. And... It's kind of like Tom and Jerry if there were no jokes in it. <laughs> sort of looking at it from, I call myself an outsider to this film, it starts as it means to go on, really. that There are a lot, and, and this film does borrow very obviously, it's not very subtle, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But even a film that I suppose surely must have been in some way inspired by this space balls it seems to that seemed to be the first film that popped in my head you know the opening shot of the the large spaceship flying overhead and and even mel took a step outside of the flying caravan which was also in space balls to play a game called space ball <laughs> it's just the fact that they're driving a flying winnebago with wings we later find out is a um a hire car this is 
four aliens from the planet Blob who decide, well, they're not a fan of Mel, and he goes outside and Jimmy Nail decides, right, he's gone, let's let's shoot off. Yeah, I think another thing that was influenced by it, I'm sure we're going to get a volley of cat calls me saying this, but I think there was a fair bit of early Red Dwarf in there. Just Ooh. in the whole... The make do amend style of the, you know, parody, the broadness of the adoption of genre stereotypes. Uh, and also, you know, that was created by Grant and Naylor, who worked on a lot of the same shows as Griffith Jones in particular as writers. They will have, I'm sure they'll have been, you know, thought, what are our mates doing at the cinema? Let's go and see it. Yeah. I think some of it did feed into that but jimmy nail is an odd person to be in this at that point because he'd only done a couple of things uh he'd been in ophida's aim pet where he's not quite the same character in more on Outer space but he'd also been in spy ship which was a very serious bbc cold war drama and i don't think he'd done very much else certainly nothing where you'd, you'd think he'd be the ideal fit to go alongside uh mel and griff and also, it's worth saying, the two of them barely appear together in the whole film. Yeah. I'm not sure what anyone was playing out there. You think you're two big stars. Obviously, Mel is Bernard, the, I suppose, of the four morons, probably the most advanced. Uh, <laughs> the, the least morons. <laughs> say the, the tallest dwarf in the village. It's um, And yet, there's a scene quite early on when... There's there's no intelligent life anywhere, and they cut to Griff Reese Jones as Graham, who works as a mm-hmm. sort of low level for a news news station. And, and yeah, they throughout the film they they don't interact until right at the end of the film mm-hmm. because Mel ends up being or Bernard as I should call him ends up being <laughs> dispatched. Eventually, makes his way to Arizona while. The three morons left end up somewhere outside of Hatfield, which is um, having. I, I went to school quite near there, and um, yeah, there isn't a lot going on unless they happen to go into the uh, the large outlet centre or the McDonald's where my my mates were working at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think as well. It can't decide which storyline it wants because they both belong to separate storylines. Mm. Which is uh, Griff is part of the. You know, the media trying to exploit these aliens who... I mean, it is quite an amusing conceit that they don't have anything to offer mankind. They're just popular because they're there. They're not, they've got no new technology. They've got no cures for illnesses. They've got no evil plan to take over the world. They are literally just morons from outer space. And so there's that. And Mel's storyline is weird and esoteric because he separated from them. He sort of becomes homeless and is in a hostel at one point, isn't he? And yeah, yeah uh, it's the two things don't really tie up. It doesn't quite become either a parody of sci-fi or a social satire or an attack on the media. It just sort of dips its toes into all three and they don't kind of sit together that well. The weird thing is, is I thought with the morons, and, and as you say, they're famous because they're there, not for anything they've done. And and we see a lot of that as when Sandra tries singing. You know, she's quite obviously dreadful, but every man falls at her feet. They remind me an awful lot of perhaps early Big Brother winners. They're um, <laughs> famous for being yes. of Big Brother, but it's, um, I mean, Joanne Pierce, who played Sandra, really hasn't, been in an awful lot 
since she seems in this film to have a like almost a poison ivy style effect on people where everyone falls in love and everyone is besotted with her which of course has some benefits to it but um they sort of go off and and once graham eventually catches up but this is after their landing when it is a little bit slapstick and this spaceship caravan type vessel going up the m1 and the uh the middle-aged couple who were stuck in front when the, they got was it when they they had their accident they ended up in a ditch and they said, oh did you get his number I think I think he was from Belgium now, did that remind you of anything <laughs> it might have been something out of a Roger Moore Bond film well it reminded me again I'm not sure this is a coincidence but the comic strip presents Mr Jolly lives next oh, door yes. There's a very similar scene with uh, Dawn French and who's driving with her, but uh, where they get obviously they run off the road not by a spaceship. Mm. It's a very similar scene, and again, you think, you know, was that a direct influence on it? Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> it was funny to see the traffic cops turn up. Uh, should we put the cones out? Um, of course, that was the webcam legend Leslie Grantham. Yes. <laughs> just be- just before EastEnders. Or is it actually 1905? It probably would have been about the same time EastEnders started, wouldn't it? That was a weird little spot. And, and it, that was probably their version of satire of what the police would be like and, you know, turn up, not do anything, but chuck some cones out and make it look like you are. <laughs> uh, I love just reporting a bit of congestion between exits 8 and say 23 uh looks like a spaceship of some description over can i put the cones out sarge yeah might as well sweep the road for debris <laughs> they've landed and the higher level british intelligence and the the armed forces start getting involved and it's uh, a very interesting sort of clash of cultures as the commander's taken from his dinner party and, and there's the mayhem as the aliens are here because the news has broken because Graham really is the only one from the TV station who manages to get there, albeit fudges it massively to start with. And and the news spreads that, yeah, we've, we've had a, a first contact of sorts. Yeah, and there is a great... One of the few really, really brilliant gags in it is the... There's a... Kind of send up with the Close Encounters four notes that turns into somebody playing the entertainer on an organ. And not only that, it goes on and on and on, and while characters are begging him to stop, and he carries on. And that that is really funny because some of the. It's a very. Again, it's a, something they don't quite sit with each other. Was I think Mike Hodges was trying to parody, as you say, the Close Encounters thing, E.T., everything, you know, the big budget sci fi that was in vogue at that point. Ooh. And he does that quite well. But on the other hand, I don't think the script, which is by Mel Smith and Griff jones really goes in for the kill on that. It's a bit more like, it's like a very long version of one of their sketches where the whole point of it was just space. Yeah. Where, you know, Griff would be a policeman and go like, oh, I see, sir, your UFO's being parked by E.T. and Darth Vader in Space <laughs> Bay 8. Or, you know, that it doesn't really get any more niche than that and the two things like as i say feel a bit disconnected really i suppose if this was a film by perhaps eddie murphy he'd have played or or griff reese jones would have played several of the characters himself and 
they would have popped up and they would have also been the policeman doing a very brief sort of insert mm. there. And, and that, while it would have obviously taken away from the story, it would have been at least that amusing part where it also references their their sketch stuff and the fact that they did a lot of their best work as a pair. Yeah, it would have been more recognisably Smith and Jones because I have a thing about there are very few films with TV comedians where it's obvious that they've gone to somebody with a good idea for a film and said, you know, uh, this will make a great film. Let's make it. I mean, there's very few I can think of. I'd say Bedazzled, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore film is an example of that. But. One we did talk about in the, the Cannibal Run episode was The Boys in Blue by uh, Cannon yes. and Ballers. Perhaps not yeah. uh, not the high point of the genre, but... Hmm. Yeah, that. I mean, that to me would be one where somebody's just said, they're popular, get them in something. <laughs> and I think you only have to look at in the, the, the script book of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's got the original script from when somebody just said you want to make a film, which is dreadful. It's just very long, ponderous sketches all joined together, which later became mm. the fourth series of Monty Python. But it's obvious that they they read it back and somebody, probably Eric Idle, said, do you know what, we need an actual idea for this or we're just wasting everyone's yeah. time. <laughs> so they came up, you know Holy Grail was one of my favourite films ever. I don't think it would be if they'd stuck with the original format for it. But I think I get the impression somebody said, you two should make a film, you know. And they went, uh, OK, what could we do? Um, oh, yeah, some aliens come to Earth. <laughs> yeah. The film kind of then sort of straddles a few different genres. You've got the aliens landing. You've got the, the satire about fame and... And and also a little bit about the British establishment in general. You know, part of it where you see the people turning up to the alien crash site with their signs, uh, if you're from Venus, you can suck my lollipop, and, and so on. And even the weird little jokes that you say are like a sketch where Bernard tries to hitch a ride from a helicopter. Yes. <laughs> and that's almost... You know, when it works out that he's a male and not a female, that that almost reminded me of something out of Derek and Clive, the, the cab drivers. <laughs> There's flashes of potential brilliant comedy in there, and, and it's either wasted by being out of context or too short and, and, you know, quite easily, as I say, could have been a sketch elsewhere. But that's how he ends up in Arizona, living like we've got raccoons taped to his head and communicating with... <laughs> Communicating with dustbins. Yeah, he actually says, take me to your leader to a bin, doesn't he? <laughs> and then when he ends up going to a larger bin, he's like, oh, yes, here you are. Um, and, and then in a link to one of the other episodes, um, he is not, and this is the scene that leads to him being taken to hospital. He's run over by uh, Shane Rimmer, who we talked about at the Superman 2 episode and was in a couple of Bond films. Oh, well. it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah I mean, he, he's somebody where that. people would know his voice more. Than- yeah, well, um, as it was John Rain was talking about on the previous episode, where because he was one of the many American actors living in London at the time and got a lot of work on films like Superman, Empire Strikes Back and so on, that, and he was animated, or he was the voice of, uh, oh, what was the character's name? It Was, was it Dirk? Oh, Dick Spanner. Um, yeah. And because he was in England doing that, and doing that as well, so it was only a very little cameo. Yeah, that was sort of led to Bernard being hospitalised eventually, despite hitting every door and wall in the way. Uh, it didn't take him long, I suppose. If you're a 
semi-coherent being in a hospital talking about things like aliens and so on, you're going to be carted off to the the other wing. Yeah. The other, it sounds horrible to call them inmates, the other patients at the hospital are Mm. split into the two camps of Hitler and Jesus, which is not subtle. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, I think there are elements of the film which some people might find problematic these days. Even just the title, it more onto it for frowned on word these days, isn't it? And yet, it's, it's one of the least offensive films of the 80s. So uh, it just shows how much times can change. And you know, nobody would have thought anything of the the mental hospital, mental ward scenes at the time. I'm not sure that they they quite hit the marks these days. No. Something I've from listening to another podcast about WWF wrestling, and they at the time, and this was around this time actually, the sort of mid-80s, had midget matches. And of course, midget now is generally seen as a derogatory term and the wrestling broadcast which is still shown virtually uncensored on their website have to have the disclaimer at the beginning saying there's like there's language and behavior and conduct which we don't Mm. now tolerate and of course 30 years later of course it's easy to say that some of the things they did and dressing up in blackface and (laughs) this that and the other I mean, let's be fair, that was inappropriate at the time. They still did it. But this is something that, again, the the original working title of the film, of this film, was Illegal Aliens, Mm. which, while not as obviously funny, it certainly would have aged a lot better. Yeah, and it's weird. I think it probably would have... I don't think it would have been a bigger hit. It would have been less punned by people at the time if it was called that, I think, because... That's a name that it sounds weird to say it's about a film title, but it confronts you less. It demands less of an opinion from you because more on about the space is setting out its stall, and it you know it is a funny title. So it's you know it's almost saying the rest of the film is going to be as funny as this title, which I'm I'm prepared to accept. Not many people think, <laughs> but illegal aliens is kind of a it's a title you have to think about to get the joke. In my experience, that immediately catches people off guard when they they can't just make a prejudgment based on the title. It's something that takes them just that tiny bit of effort to get, like lowers your defences a little bit. I really do think that's true, to be honest with you. You know, apparently that's one of the reasons why they they fell out, Smith and Jones and and Mike Hodges, was about the, the title of the film. And it doesn't necessarily translate well for international audiences and so on. And it does immediately set you up. I mean, the the writing of the the four aliens, morons, whatever, sets it up straight away that, right, you don't need to think these four people are idiots, even though Mel Smith doesn't, you know, again, he's not not as dumb. He's not as stupid. He comes across better anyway than than the other three. We're still basically encouraged to refer to him as moron one or four yeah, I think it's worth saying Bell Smith has a, had a long track record of things just having a straightforward title. I mean, if you look at you know the Mr. Bean film called Bean, the tall guy, well, you have to actually see the film to know what that's referring to. That's a pretty on-the-money title. There was a stage play, The Gambler. You know, <laughs> you can't really mistake what that's about. Illegal Aliens isn't really a... 
Mel Smith kind of title. So I can see that he probably stood his ground about it quite vociferously. I mean, even the what I think was the absolute high point of their work together, which was the last Smith & Jones Christmas special in, I think it was 1987, but it's called The Homemade Christmas Video. <laughs> you know, you know exactly what to expect from that. And it does deliver on that, but they weren't ones for clever titles, so I can see where the conflict came from. I need to uh, reread that BFI interview, I think. it was. Um, there was a part documentary, and there was actually a video interview as well, which it would have been quite good. It was actually on the BFI's website. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, actually. It was sort of quite interesting when I was doing the research for this. It was clearly written by someone who was a fan. It was actually by uh, John Spira. documentary maker again showing a bit of passion which always helps when you're making a video like that but even coming back to the film there were sequence where the three i suppose captured for want of a better word uh, were being interrogated by the scientists and it was it was like talking to four-year-old children really the some of the questions they were asking and and i think once they established that these this is not intelligent life this isn't these aren't people who are going to come here and solve any energy crisis or fix the environment it doesn't take them an awful lot to um to perhaps look into putting them down not necessarily humanely either and that's when graham who's still loitering around the the residence actually becomes their rescuer for want of a better word, he abandons his TV career to, to help them escape, which is very noble. But as we see later on, there's certainly a, an ulterior motive behind it. Yeah, dollar signs in front of his eyes, really. Yeah. Uh, which is why uh, I don't think you could really call it a spoiler. The very last scene is he wants to represent Bernard. So. Yeah. Yeah, his cash cow's gone, so he spotted another one. I don't think he can sing as well as uh, Sandra did, but... Uh... Well, that, that, that does bring me round to the theme song, Credited mm. to the Morons. I'm convinced Griff Reece jones is not on that. I can only hear Mel Smith. <laughs> I might have to dig that one out on YouTube and stick that at the beginning of the podcast. Please do, because it's the most bizarre song ever. And as far as I'm concerned, it sounds very similar to Charmless Man by Blur. <laughs> I'm not saying Damon Albarn went to see Morons from Outer Space, but, you know, might have done. Well, he went to art school. I'm sure um, they must have studied it in some way. It's but, <laughs> um, but when, when Graham's got them back at his place, one of the things that seemed to be make me laugh more than anything was the scene where, because the the police and the army and, and everything else turn up to try and recapture them. And there is the part where they're watching the riot or the, the crowd outside on TV while they're inside. And he says, oh, look, he's, he looks like he's going to throw that brick. And he goes straight for him, clogs him <laughs> on the head. It, it was just little things like that. Stupid, simple things, but it's a comedy at the end of the day. And it's not very sophisticated, but it still works. When he sees the news, they... They decide, right, how can we make this work for us? And uh, uh, as you say, the, the dollar signs appear in his eyes. But this is how, also how Bernard decides that he's able to, to reconnect because he, this news, and I suppose it would be worldwide news, goes around to he's in, still in Arizona. And they, because they're international stars and living the life in their hotel suite in London and drinking their, uh, the pale ale and 
running up phone bills and so on, they're, um, they go off to do a so- uh, show in New York, and that's where he goes to meet them. Well, it's literally only just occurred to me, and I can't believe I'd never thought of this before, how closely was Bernard's storyline mi- mirroring the man who fell to earth? Ooh. Similar sort of locations, kind of similar, you know, descent into uh, the seedier side of life. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, you know, more on about space is play for laughs a bit. <laughs> so, I don't think anyone could ever accuse the man who fell to earth of being played for laughs. But no. I do wonder if that was one of the things Mike Hodges was picking out, really. Something that I think... It's so obviously, and I don't think they're trying to pretend otherwise, that it's borrowed from other films. And to be honest, um, you know, it's still an alien thing. There's only so much you can do with it. And especially back then with, you know, effects as they were. And sometimes the, those level of effects actually make it more authentic. Everything around it from, from chat shows that they're on, which, funnily enough, is very similar to a sort of chat show that was on the previous podcast we did about absolute beginners where sort of divides start to appear when bernard who's still in america goes to the sheriff to say that i'm the fourth alien because this is where they've let it slip that there is a fourth one (laughs) the funny bit is that he says yeah yeah yeah," and there's a huge queue of people dressed as aliens also (laughs) claiming the same thing (laughs) because he's you know mel smith it's i do wonder how would they test you know, he's not your, your alien that's green with antenna and mm-hmm. five eyes or something. I do wonder what the sort of test that that, that would be. Um, I'm just reminded of, you know, the standard thing in Doctor Who in, you know, the early days when he was knocked unconscious on Earth and a doctor would go, some joker's messing about, this blood's not human. <laughs> That sort of thing. I'm sure yeah. I'm just picturing that sort of carry on, really. <laughs> but even there are still well-written lines sort of tucked away when the, uh, the aliens are, sort of one of them says, oh, well, you know, they, they're clearly bored with their lot and they're finding this constant touring of their fame exhausting. So we're thinking of retiring. Graham says, well, you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> That's actually the highlighted quote for the film on IMDb. I did notice it, yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, sort of clever in, in its way because, and, and it's true because I suppose they're putting across that it's almost like they are starting to become aware that they're being exploited. Mm. Um, the film kind of aims you down a way that you're not, you don't want to give them too much credit for being clever. But again, they're still human-ish and still seem to have these emotions eventually he manages to convince them to go out and do their concert which goes incredibly badly (laughs) it's um the sort of thing that would be on youtube as a as a howler i noticed that that was filmed at wembley stadium which they did quite well to get yeah well the interesting thing is that mel and griff were back there shortly afterwards because people forget they did some of the links on live aid as a policeman, well, when was Griff not a policeman, but saying that somebody complained <laughs> about the noise. So obviously Morons About Space didn't dent their career too badly because, a couple, you know, a couple of months later, we're on the biggest concert ever held alongside, you know, the absolute giants of rock. So mm. it didn't do that much damage, really. I suppose you look at 
some of the contemporaries of even now and i think people like uh not maybe not in the same film but you know even like little britain which was you know 15 years ago really that started and matt lucas and david williams have been in various films to to varying degrees and and people like that and i suppose that the less we say about ant and dex effort at aliens and and so on the better have you ever seen the smack the pony film um no i haven't gladiatress which it was about three years after gladiator as well (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> fairly dreadful. Um, oh. You know, um, the, the, the Mitchell and Webb one, Magicians, I think, was a... That seemed just, again, like trying to capitalise on on Peep Show and, and the fact that they were quite big. At, well, I suppose they still are to an extent. And this is the part where, I guess, this, whether it serves as a warning or an encouragement to some, you know, the, the vanity of a comedy act and... and even comedians or, or others trying to be virtually exploited by making the most of their fame while they still can. You know, even what, 33 years later, it still kind of echoes that you can imagine something similar happening. I, I know it might not be Ant and Deck because the one with the big head seems to be going through some issues at the time of recording. It, it's not going to be long before the next the next big thing seems to make a foray into cinema or something like mm-hmm. that. But I think it is worth really emphasising about more on some out of space that it isn't quite of a piece with all those disasters. It's a film that underachieves very badly, but it's not mm. a bad film and it has a reputation of being a bad film. And that's completely undeserved. It you know, it clocks in at a decent time, it doesn't let up with the story or with the comedy. It doesn't quite work, but it doesn't not work either. And I, th- I don't like the way it's the, it's the butt of every joke about comedians doing films because there are more deserving targets than yeah. it, really. I, I think this, and and from, from looking at it with those fresh pair of eyes, I remember parents watching it, which is how I sort of saw it when I was a lot younger. There are some very funny bits in here, and I think had it been a more, whether it's to do with the production or the writing or however it works, there's it's a lot less than the sum of its parts, which I suppose, yes, there are parts of this which are dreadful and silly and really don't belong, but there is a lot of merit in there. And and particularly Mel Smith's performance, I was quite, I found quite impressive the fact that, but then this is the part in that he didn't really interact with the other three or even with Griff Rhys Jones, <laughs> acting as someone who gets taken in as a someone with mental health issues rather than being an alien. <laughs> Yes, it's not a great film, but I think there were parts of it that had quite a lot of merit, and certainly some of the writing, some of the scripts, was quite sharp and quite clever. Mm, I think what I have actually heard one valid criticism of it, which this is going to take some explaining, but Stuart Lee and Richard Herring used to do a thing called Extra Final Scenes, where they do a sort of sketch you know, adding a bit to the end of the film, like there's the the Braveheart one where they question about the historical inaccuracies at the end of it. <laughs> and things like that. But the more on some of the space one was Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones hand back their fee and say sorry to everyone. Which seems a bit sneery, but there is actually context because to them, and I think to Richard in particular has said this a lot, not the nine o'clock news were kind of like their rock stars, their you know, their pop mm. idols. And when you're young, you know, when you invest in somebody like that, I mean, this happened to me with Vic Reeves. That, this, this gets me a lot of brickbats when I say this. But when, you know, you think somebody's brilliant and they do something that 
you see them slip up in public and yeah. you think, I don't like that as much. That can be quite, that can hit you quite hard at a young age. And so that was, you know, their thing with Morons from Outer Space was they had a lot of time for Mel and Griff and, you know, then they do this film that really isn't up to the same standard. And I, I can see it from that point of view, actually. Out of interest, what was the Vic Reeves thing? <laughs> Vic Reeves, for me, was... Uh, there is this whole myth that they were discovered from nowhere for Big Night Out, which, mm. you know, it's completely wrong because they'd been on other programmes. And I remember seeing the trailer for Big Night Out and thinking, oh, they've got a series now, I'll watch that. And I yeah. loved Big Night Out. I loved The Weekenders as well, the pilot they did for Channel 4. I didn't like them when they appeared as themselves on chat shows. It was a big problem. And then I didn't. I never liked The Smell of Bees and Mortar and Shooting Stars as much, which people don't believe when I say that, but genuinely, they just didn't grab me in the same way. Oh, and I remember feeling that kind of... Not crushing disappointment, but a bit kind of, I'm a bit sad that this isn't for me anymore. Irano. You're going to get complaints about that now. <laughs> well, no, the interesting thing is, I've sort of given away the time this has been recorded, but um, the latest Adam Buxton yes. podcast where he <laughs> speaks to Bob Mortimer about this and shooting stars, and he's almost excusing it to a point of saying it's more mainstream because of the fact that there are regular celebrities on there. Hmm. And I suppose that that was their, that was their in. And that was what got them the most figures purely because someone who hadn't watched them before could tune in and say, Oh, there's someone off EastEnders or there's someone, the yeah. someone of blur or, or whatever in an alternate universe, uh, Vic and Bob would have done a film, something similar to this. Well, I mean, you know, now I'm older, you can rationalise these things easily and just say, well, you know, it was clearly good, it just wasn't for me anymore. You know, pe- yeah. people that you recognise from EastEnders is fine, but, you know, it's not Sir Lloyd Crisp, the disappearing hazelnut man, which is the sort of thing that <laughs> I laughed at. But yeah. when you're younger, you do invest more in creative people in the public eye, and it can be more of a... You know, like when the band suddenly does an album that's not as good. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, when you're younger and it means a lot to you, that can be a problem. So I, I can see that there were people, there were people probably to whom, you know, Mel and Griff and people like that were kind of on a par with punk, really. Yeah. Certainly, I, I've, I do know people who loved Rick Mayle, who, I, again, I don't agree with this, but didn't like the New Statesman and thought that was him stepping into cosy sitcom land. Mm. And, you know, that, that felt like a betrayal to them. I, I don't buy that at all because I love the New Statesman. That's slightly off at a tangent, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're still in the same sport, I guess. And I suppose we can just be grateful that Twitter wasn't around back then. <laughs> <laughs> I've never searched for more on Smart Space on Twitter because I think it might make me very angry. There'd be a lot of more ends from outer space, lol, <laughs> in response to something Theresa May used done or something like that. But. <laughs> well, maybe she is from outer space, I don't know. <laughs> but weirdly, that when, when I put on a picture of on Twitter that's saying, you know, I'm watching more ends from outer space, and I did have a couple of comments going, oh, my God, you know, why, what what have you let yourself in for? And it's kind of like, well, and I'll say that with this Twitter account, it's quite obvious why. Yeah. 
But also, what what day and time were you watching it? It was Sunday evening. There's not much good on the telly at that point. There's much worse things on the TV. So yeah, I, th- I think you can't really criticise somebody for watching Morons from Outer Space. <laughs> the, ki- the kids were in bed and I don't watch Antiques Roadshow. There's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well... Thank you for bringing it to my attention again. I know we we talked about this um, a few months ago, and 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 like most of the films that I have watched as part of this that I I wasn't so familiar with, it's nice to see or to try and look for positives. You know, this isn't a, a podcast just about slating films, and yeah, there are a lot of bits in this that I thought, Jesus, this is rubbish, but there were parts of it that I genuinely enjoyed and thought were actually very clever. So again, you know, and, and hopefully it's enhanced or or at least raised it in, in my mind a little bit. And I suppose that's all we can hope for. But will you go out and read the book of this one, though? Well, bear in mind that <laughs> again, as I read half of it while my wife was in a maternity ward and still hadn't finished. I'll see if the script is available on eBay for this. <laughs> Yeah, so or maybe I'll um, I'll stick to some of the uh, the more Mike Hodges films that uh, <laughs> that I'm familiar with, or or at least a, an excuse to track down some of Smith and Jones back catalogue, which I suppose is more more enjoyable. Well, Tim, again, thank you very much for joining us. Um, your looks unfamiliar podcast is going from strength to strength. What can people thank expect you. from you in, in the future? Let me think. Uh, well, I've got a couple of guests lined up. Um, so I like to. Make a sort of mix it up and have names and non names. I mean, one person who's going to be on it is just one of my friends from (laughs) that I've known from down the pub since I was about 18. So, yeah, uh, there will be more names on there and there'll be more people you've never heard of. And that's that's how I like it, really. Good. Yeah. I like discovering new people. Things. I mean, I subscribe to the the theme park podcast where you have one yeah. of the presenters on recently, and it's always good to discover new things as well as hearing people that you know well. But with that podcast, where you know people are talking about things that they remember from either their childhood or, or from a while ago, that it's, it's something that, especially now with the resources we have at our fingertips, I suppose we can find things a little bit easier, whether it's YouTube or eBay or whatever, where we can have a look and say, you know what, I might give that a try. That's a good thing, I think. Yep. Someone that was sent my way from you, uh, Ben Baker, is going to be uh, joining me very soon to talk about a one of the films that I think was voted the worst of all time. Ah, uh, God, I've got a good idea what he's picked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <I know. laughs> It's a film I remember fondly from my youth, so that, that's a treat for uh, that later down the line. I'm uh, we're recording that one well next week from from now anyway. So uh, God help us all. <laughs> well, um, again, Tim, thanks very much. Um, so it's out on Blue Six is your Twitter handle. Uh, it is, yeah. Look, looks unfamiliar as the podcast and. I'm going to play us out before I get caught for late fees. Um, the song that was number one when this film was released, 29th of March, 1985, it was Easy Lover. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Which doesn't sound that dissimilar theme song. <laughs> Maybe I'll dig that one out as well and play it at the same time. Um, Tim, thank you very much for joining us and um, <laughs> look forward to uh, whatever you bring to my doorstep next time. 
This podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.